<laughs> well, welcome to Milk and Poker Paradise, Anton Wilson. Uh, thanks for having me, Noah. It is a pleasure coming on here this beautiful Saturday afternoon. Uh, I'm actually in Denver, Colorado. And Colorado is my 44th state that I have visited. Uh, pretty busy day here, but wanted to make sure I took the time to come on this podcast, talk about the landscape of political affairs, uh, especially here in America. So I'm really excited to come on this podcast and uh, talk today. Yeah, so I was going to ask you if you can give us a, like, a little bit of a biography about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I'm originally from... Uh, Natick, Massachusetts. It's outside of the Boston area. And I was an athlete for about, you know, the first uh, two thirds of my life thus far. Uh, football player, ended up playing in college, uh, had a handful of knee injuries, had three ACL reconstructive surgeries, and it allowed me to begin developing as a professional quite a bit. Um, allowed me to go to graduate school where I was a graduate assistant football coach in Minnesota. And from there, I was coaching sports all throughout the country and really got embedded in the education system, but starting to understand how the values of the youth were beginning to change. Uh, aside from that, I've been cutting my teeth as a health and performance coach at the private sector from wellness clinics to training professional athletes. Um, and then that allowed me to jump into more of the technology space where I'm currently the founder of a digital health system called Hyperspeed Health Technologies, uh, where we're in gyms, we partner with life insurance companies, and also offer uh, pretty advanced corporate wellness packages, identifying health risk, uh, detecting burnout uh, pretty early, and trying to maximize overall work performance. And so, you know, in a nutshell, I like to say that my life's journey has been about turning adversity from my injuries into developing as a professional, and really just being very curious about the temperature of the country and where things are going. And as I've developed an industry, it's made me more economically and politically aware. And so as I continue to develop as an entrepreneur and capitalizing on some of the benefits that America presents, I'm also coming of age in one of the most turbulent times in modern American history. And so I feel like I'm just living the process and I feel like I have a pretty unique story. And so I'm really just trying to not just tell it, but use it as a blueprint for other people that have a similar background. Like my dad was a drill sergeant, um, a state trooper. My mom was an immigrant that came here from the Cape Verde Islands that really worked hard for everything she had, which I feel like embody the American dream for the most part. And so I'm out to almost show people that that does still exist. Yeah, I'm like, I still, still think we're making things still exist in a lot of ways that we just don't, we don't see every day these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think things are drastically changing. Um, and so there's a lot of blind spots for sure. So what is the fourth turn theory or the Strauss how, how or how generational theory? Yeah. So the fourth turning is really just like generational cycles. And that's something that really intrigues me because I think modern America got to this point um, from World War II. That was like the inception of like this modern America. And that's mm -hmm. the baby boom. And the baby boom is a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution as like work began to expand. And we transitioned from factories to women in the workplace. And from there came the concept of radio, which became like a public forum to get like the distribution of news and information. 
Um, so the first generation, obviously, being baby boomers. And then you look at, like, the 60s and the 70s, and you have, like, the civil rights movement, like the birth of, like, rock and roll and, like, a counterculture, which also <laughs> played a role in the development of, like, technology and innovation. That was, like, the spirit of what drove the desire to, like, disrupt in Silicon Valley. And then you have, like, the 80s, which is, like, the Reagan era. And that's where, like, and that's almost like the byproduct of, like, gener Generation X coming of age a little bit. And that's where they began to have children. And that's the millennials, which is the third generation that grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And so the Reagan era allowed a lot of people to prosper. But it also created, it didn't really create an inclusive America. And the wealth gap got larger. Corporations got bigger and wages stopped increasing and college became a lot more expensive. And the concept of home ownership became something that became a lot less accessible. And then you have this millennial generation that began coming of age in the 2000s. And to me, it's like the, the Bill Clinton presidency, I would say, was like the peak of this huh. time period. And I say that because there were no... Um, there were no conflicts globally and Americans had spending power. So everyone was prospering. And then right when the 2000s hit post 9-11, then you have like Katrina and then you had a recession. And that's when things began to get really, really turbulent. So you have this third generation, the millennial group that stepped into a terrible job market in the America that their parents and grandparents grew up in is no longer accessible to them. And then fast forward to the 2010s where like where I talked about the commercialization and radio, mm -hmm. the development of technology, well, you have this fourth generation called Gen Z. And they are very, very disconnected from all of these values and technology and commercialization and pop culture really impacts their values. And so through generational cycles, which is a span of like 80 to 100 years, that first generation baby boomers to the Gen Zers, there is just a vast difference in which the trust in the institutions and almost like the rigidity and like this kind of conservative old fashioned mentality. I don't mean conservative from a political standpoint, but more just like yeah. and an openness to new ideas. Um, they're just very, very far apart. And at the end of that fourth turning, Gen Z, which is what you're now seeing with Gen Alpha as we head into the 2020s, is that the system is spiraling and it's beginning to collapse and come undone. And so we're almost like in this age of like the bubble of everything in which it's just like, well, something's got to give here. And so now we're at a point where there's not only a lack of trust in the institutions, there's massive political polarization. And this sets the stage for a revolution. So the four turns, the high, the awakening, the unraveling, and the crisis. Can you please explain the meaning of each of these turnings? Uh, can you say that? Word those out again? Uh, let, let's go one by one. What was the first one? The high. For high. The high? Okay, so the high in this turn is the baby boom. We have everyone coming home from war. Everyone's rapidly reproducing. <laughs> the concept of the nuclear household is at its all-time high. People are buying homes. The automobile was rising. And so now people are living in the suburbs, buying homes, driving out to the city. That's the high. Okay. That's, that's like, I would say America from like 42 huh. to like 65. Or maybe a lot of people say that when JFK died, that was like the, oh shit, like we're not in the. Oh yeah, I think that. Things are changing. I believe JFK died in 63. 
And that's when America began to change. And then a byproduct of that is JFK, why he's so polarizing is because he's a product of the times. He's a, he's a guy that fought in World War II that grew up in that era. And he was like the first representation in political power, but also the first president in which we have like mainstream media, like that first mm-hmm. that he had with Nixon was like incredibly polarizing. He was just displaying a level of youth and vigor. And it was like, he was a reflection of that time in America. So when he was assassinated, it was like everyone felt it. And that, and then from there, like you have the assassination of his brother and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and all these highly controversial issues of which we now have 20 years of a sample size of like this new America and people were beginning to introduce new ideas. So I'm going from the high to the awakening. The awakening is the, uh, the, the proposition of a new way to look at things or understanding that like there isn't necessarily equality or looking at the institutions and wanting to make them stronger or like begin like um, refining elements of the system, whether it was concepts of like integration or segregation or whether it was concepts of like the color television, what was displayed, uh, what were, what was the television programming displaying and like, what was the perception of America? from Hollywood, from Hollywood to like, there was like a high emphasis on like commercializing, like sex appeal. So like, that's where we oh. were being desensitized. And so that's like where the awakening is, is like America is really conservative. And there was like this storybook vision of like the white picket fence. And like, now we're beginning to turn away from it. There's an openness to like drugs. It's like the, the Vietnam war was the first time where people are like, you know what? Like, I don't know if I support this war because in World War II, everyone mm-hmm. was unified. In moments of crisis, people come together. But during the Vietnam War, people are like, why are we in this war? What are we doing? And so it's a little bit of a revolt in which people are just becoming more conscious of like global affairs. And then from awakening to the unraveling. The unraveling is the Reagan presidency. And that is which like, okay, they understand the dynamics of the game. And it was like, the Republican Party found like the perfect poster child. And if you actually follow Ronald Reagan's career, it's very similar to Donald Trump's in the fact that he was like a celebrity. He was a star. And then uh-huh. he became like the poster child for like conservative ideals. <laughs> outwardly uh, very liberal in his youth. And then he totally changed. Oh, yeah. And that allowed California to become almost like a global superpower in and of itself. And that set the stage. If you can run California at that time, it's very easy to run America, especially when they have an economy that's competing with the rest of the world. And so what Reagan did is he made private sector become a juggernaut and that really uh, diminished government's ability to really do its job. And they fell really, really far behind. And I think that's where the wealth gap and like the access to like, um, you know, the liberties that America has to offer began becoming far less accessible to the average person. And that's what I would define the unraveling as, um, which is like 89 to like, you know, I mean, excuse me, 80, almost to like 2008, man, like to be honest. Uh-huh. But like there are, there are ebbs and flows because the, the um, you know, the world that Ronald Reagan became president in versus like the world that Bill Clinton inherited were vastly different. 
And so I do think that like Ronald Reagan created a gap of like winners and losers. I think Bill Clinton kept the temperature nice and warm. And because he mm -hmm. was a very likable guy, it was like everyone just felt cool. And like I think that that's like, although it is an unraveling, I do think that was like the last days of like that post-World War II like ideal version of America. And I always say when 9-11 happened, that's when I felt like my childhood ended in which ah. I like, Shit, things are starting to change now. Like the world's going to be a little different. And that was like that moment where like, I don't know, a lot of things began to shake up. And so that's like that pay, that period of time is what you would define as the unraveling as that's like the third stage of the generational cycle. And then uh, lastly, going from the unraveling to the crisis. The crisis is, I would say, starting with the, the housing market in 2008 into massive layoffs. And the economy has been in this sort of like rebuild post 2008 to where we're at now. And then you had Silicon Valley really took off. Uh, innovation tech, like the, the startup world, investing, private equity, Wall Street, and a lot of things, then interest rates got really, really low. And so a lot of those things like recessions happened and, and you know, there's the dot-com bust in 2000. And then you had another recession in 2008. And, you know, just based off of like the fiscal cycle, um, you're always going to get a recession within like that eight year time period, like six to eight, it may vary hmm. sometimes 12. So we were due for a recession probably in like 2016 to 2018. And there were people that worked in the realm of finance and private equity. They're like, okay, like, when, are, when is it going to become undone? And they kept everything <laughs> propped up. And they didn't let the cycle because they started printing out money rapidly. And like right around that phase, it's just like money ruled us all. And so like the institutions, people are no longer trusting them. Going to college is becoming really expensive. You have a whole group of this millennial generation that's taking on so much debt, making it almost impossible for them to buy, buy a, house, a house. And now they are almost neutralized in any sort of upward mobility. And at this point now, I mean, I think that the writing is on the wall in which like, it's not like we're in the midst of one crisis. We have like a half dozen crises simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And that's like where we get to the point where it's like now something has to give. And what that tends to end with is some sort of revolution, some sort of depression, and some sort of war. And they all sort of correspond. <laughs> so I was, I was going to ask you, what turning point would you say we're in right now? I know it's kind of crisis, but like, would you say we're going from a crisis into never high, or like even though we're still in a crisis? I say you go from the crisis to, unfortunately, a form of a recession or even a depression. And so history tends to repeat itself. And so the, the 1920s, um, you know, which is like the beginning of the Great Depression, and then it was from the FDR presidency in which there was like a reconstruction of America. And so right now we're in the midst of the transition from like the crises, like beginning to reveal itself to like, okay, like we have to start evaluating mm -hmm. things again, picking up and like mm -hmm. establishing, you know, the build back better model, if you will, which is <laughs> campaign slogan of the Biden administration, but like rebuilding America. However, 
there's a lot of like, you know, middle class, upper middle, whatever is left of the middle class that are still surviving off of this old world and this old model. And so there's a lot of resistance to change before like things could even like fully collapse to begin building back where like there's old fashioned capitalistic values and those tend to align with what it means to be America, American, excuse me, and people refuse to let those go. And so we're at like a, a point where there's just like tension within the crisis to the point where like we haven't even gotten to like uh, mm. declaring, you know, a recession or a depression to begin that rebuild phase, which could be anywhere between, you know, best case scenario, four to six years, worst case scenario, 12 to 20. And then going from like letting Trump to letting Joe Biden, could the, could the year's presidential election be like one of the one of the four turning points? Absolutely. I think this election point, this election, excuse me, is the turning point. We're at the tipping point here. When we look at modern America, I feel like the average American doesn't feel like they're represented in this election, whether it be from the two candidates that the parties are putting out or even just you know representation in the Congress or the Senate, where it's like their representatives uh, understand the climate of what people are dealing with on a day to day. It's like they're disconnected from reality. So how can we expect anything to get done? Mm -hmm. So I feel like at this point now, it's like something's got to give. What's the straw that breaks the camel's back? Because even internally, the two parties are divided by what the ideal model is. And so it's almost like, you know, there could be, um, a revolution just like in how we define political parties where like the parties almost need to like um rebrand themselves and Ooh, so yeah i think that like you know i don't see a world of a joe biden uh another four years of biden or even the biden administration and i think that donald trump is so polarizing that if he were to win they wouldn't even allow it to happen <laughs> so <laughs> yeah you know but we're just we're at that tipping point here, man. And and I think like we're beginning to feel it now more than ever. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's like a t this election is a tipping point because either there's enough like people that don't like Joe Biden that I feel like that they could sway the election to Trump. And there's a lot of people that think Trump is going to win because of a, but Joe, of a job that Joe Biden has done on like economy, foreign policy, and everything so far. For sure. For sure. It, it, it's so tough because you also have like, you know, these wild cards, one being like Nikki Haley, where she's like essentially just a poster child for like Republican values, anti-Trump, like yeah. safe. She's very safe. And what she also appeals to is moderates and women on left wing driven women that don't like the direction of the Democratic Party and feel like Nikki Haley is a little bit more moderate and they like to see a woman in leadership and she can steal those independents or those people who are uh, frustrated with the direction of the Democrat Party and peel them back over. And so like she almost creates this divide internally within the Republican Party where it makes it difficult for the party to become aligned in, uh, in supporting Trump. And that creates an issue because they need all hands on deck if they want to defeat Biden in this instance, because regardless of Joe Biden being the front man, it appears as if the people, the puppet masters in the Democratic 
vision for where they want to take the country. And so if the Republican Party's not aligned, then they have no shot of winning. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, for sure. Uh, what do you believe contributes to the political divide of fighting in America as Americans disagree on politics and political issues more than ever? What do, are you asking, what do I think is the reason why they disagree more than yeah. ever? Yeah. I would say that there's just different American experiences, and that's based on where you're geographically located or what you've been exposed to. This is a big melting pot. The concept of America is almost like an experiment in and of itself. And so when you look at like predominant blue cities, it's like that urban lifestyle. Well, like, okay, it's a lot easier to trust the institutions when like there's good public, um, public school education systems and there's a strong healthcare system and there's access to public transportation. So like people that see that side of things and like live in like the San Francisco's, the New York's, the Chicago's, the Boston's, they have one view on like what like ideal government may look like versus like someone that's a, a landowner or a business owner in like Tampa, Florida or Nashville, where it's a little slower. And those are metropolitan areas, but like things are a little slower. There might be an emphasis of the church. The nuclear family still exists. Mm -hmm. I have my land. I have my right to carry a gun. And like, I'm American and you can't tell me what to do. And I think that those are just very different mindsets. And that's just based on what you're exposed to. Now, a big emphasis in a lot of those blue cities is that there's a strong education system. There's a lot of colleges. And so that college allows people to get, you know, white collar work and high paying jobs. And then they live in those cities, but they don't really have autonomy. They live in overly populated areas. They rely on public transportation. Their job gives them benefits. And so they're not really understanding all the freedoms and like the independence that like America is offering you mm -hmm. and so because of that people who have like just like really really fundamental right-wing values they're just like i'm going to do this by myself versus people on the other side that are like i want a strong institution and a strong community and i believe in education and strong programs and you know human needs come first and that is absolutely ideal but that's only if the systems and the infrastructure is strong and in place and it's not but it is in some pockets. And so again, it's just the perception. Everyone's perception is drastically different. And because media has become so divisive, there is a lack of acknowledgement of like other people's opinions in like an openness and policy has just become so polarized to the point where like the political climate has essentially become, well, it's us versus them, the red guys versus the blue guys. Mm -hmm. And I think that just bleeds into, like, the nature of people nowadays. Yeah, I was going to ask, what kind of societal shifts are we experiencing in the U.S. in regards to politics, and how is our current political climate factored into that? Well, you know, the one thing in, about America right now is that the show goes on. And, like, you know, there could be a lot of political polarization in the media is highlighting all these issues and just foreign affairs and um, a volatile economy, the perception of a volatile economy and concepts like high interest rates and inflation are gonna shift things like consumer behavior. And that's gonna then um, create like a level of anxiety within people. And so I feel like people are on edge and like everyone right now is just trying to get by 
But in retrospect, like for the fact that systems may be on the verge of collapsing, there are particular mm. industries in regions of the country in which people are still prospering. And so I feel like there needs to be some sort of event or like a declared recession or for like a bubble to burst or some sort of like financial component in which everything comes undone. And that's where like, I think the truth will really rise to the surface, but because everyone has their own problems and like, again, like there's still a fast flowing business um, market out there. There's a lot going mm -hmm. on. Like AI and technology are rapidly evolving and you do have industries that are thriving. And so I say that to just say, it's like, I don't necessarily know at what point, as I've essentially said before, I'm getting a little repetitive here as to like where like everyone will become conscious of like collective issues as opposed to like issues that just impact them and like how policy impacts them because how it impacts the collective will have a corresponding effect on you as a whole, but not everybody has had the demand to look at like the state of the nation. The last time that happened was during COVID. And I think that that shifted our mindset a little bit, but like everything persisted, we got back to normal. And now everyone's kind of like holding on for dear life. Yeah, I do see what you're saying, because it's like, we, we were on the verge of collapsing for like with the economy, even during COVID, because everything was shut down. And we were so worried about we were gonna fall to edge of world and we didn't, so now we're, we're still holding on, as you're saying. So it's kind of a tight world. Uh, exactly, man. And it, it's a very difficult spot for anyone to be in. I especially think like a middle-class family, uh, there's just so much uncertainty of like what the future holds. So which political issue do you think will motivate voters to vote in, is in, the, in November in the presidential election? I would say immigration. immigration right now, the issue going on at the border in Texas, um, definitely got to be number one. I would say that creates a lot of concern. I would say um, just the economy um, and like the perception of the job market and if there's any solutions to create new jobs. Um, I also think that like student debt is another one. The Democratic Party tends to kick the can down the road um, with like forgiving student debt <laughs> to campaign on that during election season. Um, that being another turbulent one. Um, I would say those. And then obviously you have just like um, women rights when we look at like abortion. That is a very um, controversial topic. And especially when you think about like just being a woman in modern America um, who might not even be politically motivated uh, by any means, but like when they hear that policy alone, they're like, well, like conservatives want that. Uh-uh, no way. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like one yeah. alone is going to determine their whole vote. And so, you know, they might live in a predominantly red state. They might be an entrepreneur and like right-wing policy may benefit them tremendously, but they're so caught up on women's rights and rightfully so to the point where like, um, by no means would they ever vote for any Republican candidate. And I, and from what I've heard in like in politics today, I feel like from what I've heard, a lot of 
like Democrats might not go for Biden because of his stance on the Israel conflict and you and make more that more than the Ukraine conflict. Yeah, I, I think that's what's really difficult. Where it's like it appears as if like Biden is just like trying to fund and facilitate war, and these are just issues that the U.S. has no business, you know, getting in. And I say that because there's just all these issues going on in American turf. Why are we acknowledging <laughs> problems on the other side of the world? Um, you know, that's just part of the United States wanting to have this global presence and almost like exercise their dominance on other people. And it also helps with global trade. So I understand all those elements, but like Biden's administration appears to be totally tone deaf and it's like they just have an agenda. And right now it appears as though facilitating a world war appears to be at the very top of that. And I think that definitely corresponds with the migration issues, which also creates civil unrest here in America. And so that keeps people, you know, almost unconscious or asleep to um, mm -hmm. what is going on globally because they have their own problems to worry about. So if like there is an agenda within the Biden administration to go fund wars, they're absolutely going to follow through with that. You know, I mean, like, for example, like a lot of people might like Democrats not not vote want want my want a, a ceasefire in like Gaza, but like at the same time, Biden administration is really not going that way right now. And I feel like that's what I've heard in media is like maybe some Democrat voters are kind of leaning, you know, opposite of Biden in the election because of that. Yeah, you know what's funny about the Biden administration is like we talk about Build Back Better and passing the infrastructure bill and trying to take on climate change, um, which, you know, sure, those are all progressive models. You know, my issue with Donald Trump was that Donald Trump used to go out there and he's a great rah-rah guy. He is, <laughs> he is electric on the stage. He moves. Yeah. There's no denying that. But Donald Trump no. gave you a strategy. He never told you how he was going to do anything. He just talked. <laughs> so, like, for me, it's just like, okay, I respect the leadership. But, like, you need to have a vision here. You know, like, you're going to say, we're going to dig up more oil. We're going to make America great. Like, we want more manufacturing jobs. Okay, Donald, how? <laughs> how? <laughs> like, yeah. how, how are we going to go about this? Like, I can get behind the movement, man. Like, it, oh, yeah. Good. But, like, how are we going to tackle these issues? The Biden administration has just been talking about, like, we've been repressed. We don't want this chaotic leader. We're going to build back better. Again, how? How? Or, like, I see that you're spending a bunch of money. I don't see my community getting any better. So it's, like, really, really difficult to support that administration. And I think they're at a point now where, like, the black community, a lot of women by default who might be, like, more uh, moderate are like, ah, I can't support, I can't support this party anymore. Like they really can't. And so I think we're now getting to the point where like just the incompetence of the Biden administration is just like turning people away. And I know that's like one thing, like for example, our incompetence made for a lot of Republicans will be immigration and how the Biden administration's done regarding immigration, illegal immigration. And because the Republicans are trying to impeach Mayorkas and though Mocus is defending himself as if that's just a personal attack on him. Yeah, it, it, and it's really gray, though, because, you know, when we look at migration, right, you know, you want to talk about global affairs, then you want to talk about migration. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, well, no, no, those are two huge issues. But yeah. But in respect, right, 
But yeah, obviously just more bodies in overly populated cities. That presents a lot of problems. I'm aware of that. And I'm not gonna, you know, try to like, oh, that's not a big issue. But like, they're just like, if they're going to get jobs, if they're going to get health insurance and things of that nature, health insurance in Europe becomes really, really polarizing. But for a long time, people in Mexico, I mean, excuse me, in Texas would want illegal immigrants because you can pay them cheap labor. And so mm -hmm. a lot of the immigrants are working a lot of those like low wage jobs that nobody wants to work. And so, you know, just trying to frame a positive here is like, does immigration, to what degree does it really hurt us? It makes us feel like we're being manipulated as a nation a little bit, for sure. But like, how does it, with all the other issues that we have, like, let's establish as a collective how this really hurts us so that we can have a better solution or like really get behind like why we need to tackle this issue as opposed to saying we need to stop them from coming in. I think that's where like, it would actually clarify people are saying, oh, it's an issue. Well, how is it an issue? How does it affect you? I don't think that that's the number one issue in America right now. It's I mean, I can see that viewpoint that you're saying. I can agree with that for sure. Yeah, I, it's just, not just every day that you think about that way. Yeah, it's just an outlook on it. Again, I just think we have a lot of other issues. And like a lot of those people are just densely packed into like hotels and like yeah they're limiting some city's ability to like you know provide for like their citizens in like those local regions but in some cities like chicago someone said the government stopped you know supporting their people years ago anyway <laughs> so like yeah you're just making a shitty situation worse but those cities already suck yeah that's what i'm saying like it's it's hard to say oh we need closer border but then we don't we don't really help our own people in our own cities because we have migration because people are coming into the, you know, the Mexico-U.S. border so much that we really have a form like we call it change for asylum laws, but it's like but we don't we don't want to because we have a Trump because we're somebody like Trump who's controlling, you know, some of the Republican base. You you could say. Yeah, but also you know when you when you take on the concept of um, illegal immigration, right? That's a yeah. really good way to develop nationalism in like just like a political tactic. It creates a us versus them common enemy. And so I think, it, you know, part of it's just like a political strategy, perhaps mm -hmm. by the right to just like get people mad at a common issue, <laughs> you know, yeah. say that, you know, so like now it's like, okay, well, if Joe Biden's going about it this way. Let's just pose this as an issue. Let's hype this one issue up, and this can start waking people up and rallying them behind a common enemy. Mm hmm So is there a political issue in America politics is not just in Congress and it's still happening ongoing, like maybe, let's say, term limits or banning TikTok or something, maybe? Well, you know, banning TikTok's controversial, and I say that because that's just a private company. And so, you know, they're an app and they exist. You know, you can, you know, download um, all types of sexually explicit content on the internet and you can consume whatever you want. And so there's minimal barriers or, you know, regulations, almost like net neutrality. That was a concept like 10 years ago that was spoken about quite a bit. And we haven't quite got there. But like, that's a private company. And so I more so challenge parents to take more control over what their kids are consuming and be more hands-on in their kids' development. I don't think you can necessarily ban TikTok. It's very, very difficult to regulate. A state mm -hmm. like Utah has taken that approach because that's a rather homogenous uh, region. 
And so they're, they're all, they all share common ideals, but in a state like Massachusetts or a state like Florida, it's like next to impossible, especially when you look at like the, the demographic breakdown and like the age groups and like where the, what ages are the most people and who's utilizing that platform. You, you can't do that. Uh, so I don't, I don't really see that happening. Um, I'm sorry, you brought up banning TikTok. What's the other thing that you brought up? I well, it's sort of just a sample. So like things Congress has not done, uh, like they've not addressed or think that everyone was term limits or like, Pack. Yeah. Turbulence was the other thing. Well, I would just say that, like, I don't think that a lot of members in Congress even understand the modern internet landscape at all. <laughs> data, technology, these apps, they're like just really, really disconnected from the times. So it's really difficult for them to process. And so I think that that definitely plays an emphasis on like cybersecurity and like regulations are like, you know, China as a nation, you know, shuts off TikTok at a certain time, or they also impact the oh. that like the, uh, the citizens are consuming. Now America can do that, but are the, are the policymakers um, aware enough to understand how to go about enacting that in policy? Because it's almost like digital governance. Um, nice little, huh. I think we're at a point where like that needs to become a prominent part of like national security. And that's more of the issue that we need to tackle as a whole. But like we have some people who are still resistant to scan a menu at a restaurant, um, to, you know, order their food. And so not everybody wants to adapt to technology. And I think that that creates some resistance. So it makes it hard to address these issues as a collective. Now, as far as term limits, um, I think that that's probably the one issue that's limiting any sort of political progress here in America. And the fact that you have to belong to a party to run as a candidate and you can't run independently and really create shockwaves. Um, if you get rid of term limits and you, and you break like that primary model and you allow people to run independently or like just like get um, the popular vote in like mm -hmm. smaller elections, I think that would drastically impact people who can get in at the ground level like state reps and members of Congress. And those are the people that, you know, really push change. And so one thing, again, I've lived in eight states. Um, I, I'm in my 44th today. And sure. Yeah, it, it's been a journey. And um, every single state has a different set of problems or a different set of needs that uh, people have. And so it's just really difficult to address the country as a whole when each state is dealing with a different set of problems. And so, and oh, I'm sorry, the point I wanted to make actually was that uh, a state representative, I actually uh, was on a campaign team for a state rep outside of Pennsylvania in like a battleground county, Bucks County. Oh. As it gets. And this, this uh, congressman was actually bipartisan. And it created some issues, but he was accessible to the people and they knew him. And so when we think about some of these local issues, because local issues have a far more impact on us than like national issues, why mm -hmm. are people going and, tr and tracking down their local congressman or state rep to take on these issues? They're nowhere to be found. And so that's up to people to come together and understand who they need to come to to solve their problems. And perhaps are they even available? And so that's something that we need to look at because there was a point in time in America where like community leaders knew their, their state reps on a first name basis. Yeah, that's why I always tell people like, when, like preparing for elections, like when I do, I prepare before election, I say, oh, make sure you like know who you're voting for. Like 
the candidates on the ish on ballots and and even after the elections who know like know who you know who is representing you in Congress. So if you have any issues or even state local reps in your state house. Because that's important to know so you can actually go for them for anything you may need. We the people are in control of you for people that represent us. We the people, know. we the people. Um, a thousand percent, but you know what? I don't want to just throw random numbers, man, but you could, you know, argue that like three-fourths of the public don't even understand how government works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> so that makes it so difficult. Like, list the Bill of Rights. Like, you know, <laughs> connected, man. So is there anything I missed about the current political climate that my listeners should know? Uh, no, man, but I would say this, and I always make a point to talk about this on podcasts is that data and technology are here and they're disrupting industry quite a bit. And everything boils down to economic production. And if you're able to create jobs, you're gonna create opportunities for people to prosper. And I think that the public health care system or public health as a whole, that system has failed us. And I think that when it comes down to like healthcare and education, I think that those are the most fundamental components to developing a high-functioning society. And so we need to look at the root of the problem a lot more and then look at concepts like technology that allow us to solve human problems and present scalable solutions. And if we're not going to trust government and you know we lack trust in Facebook, creators and entrepreneurs, and especially like the big boys in Silicon Valley who can throw money at uh, different businesses, need to understand how we can address human problems with technology. And I think that while technology can make a lot of jobs obsolete, it can create a lot of opportunity. And so I challenge the general public to become a little bit more aware of the capabilities of technology and understanding how it could be utilized for good and how like man can operate utilizing these tools to like make life better for everyone. Because when we look at long-term solutions to like uh, just like infrastructure, developing di digital infrastructure, this can streamline a lot of processes that drastically change our ability to get access to services or just the quality of care that is provided mm -hmm. or just imp impacting logistics in more ways than I can count and, and in so many different industries. And so I think that like we need to take a little bit more control um, of our own communities and our children and our schools and the businesses that we start and becoming more self-sustainable with concepts like agriculture. And we can disconnect from this political landscape entirely and come together as the people and almost say, well, we can do this ourselves. And we can see different pockets of the country develop their own administration and their own, oh. their own ways to do things. And they can say, government, get the hell out of it. But they can also have, you know, tremendous structure and even develop their own police forces in their own ways to come up with uh, solutions to like uh, national emergencies. I feel like we've become so reliant on the government and the government has failed us to the point where like we need to just come together and address these problems head on. And what that's going to require is us to become connected and develop strong communities. And that's just more difficult now than ever, because I think it's by design. Politics have polarized us and kept us divided. So where can my, where can people hear more from you? Yeah. Um, so I'm a founder of a health technology company that's called 
Hyperspeed. And our website is www.hyperspeed-usa.com. We're trying to tackle this healthcare issue by making the information that is um, collected by like your your trainer at a gym more accessible to then be impacted by like your doctor, like your insurance. So they understand mm-hmm. the full picture of your information. So like if you want to learn more about some of the work I do as I'm trying to tackle some of these issues, which ultimately become political, hyperspeed-usa.com. I have my own podcast called Performance Pulse, where I talk about what allows leaders to perform to their best ability and understanding current events and different trends and industry and what makes people tick. Um, and aside from that, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, my, my user tag is Anton G. Wilson. I'm on LinkedIn, Anton G. Wilson, and Facebook, same by my first name, Anton G. Wilson. And so right now, I'm just looking to spread awareness. Um, I have some partners all throughout the country, but more so than anything else, just have these types of conversations on podcasts like this. I think that's the first step to just spreading awareness and, you know, educating people on some key information that they need to know and try to like, you know, remove polarization and understand that we're all humans and like we all have the same problems. And if we can just become binded by that, we can begin uh, solving problems to the world we all share, which could make prosperity more accessible for all of us. Yeah, I definitely agree. With, I mean, it's. I think this conversation has been great in person like me, changed my perspective and I, hope it changes other people's perspectives and minds on, or just gives them insight on how we can change the world and even for, so we don't have to rely on government all the time, but still have it and change our lives for better, hopefully, even with technology. 100%. And there absolutely is a space for government that they need to be held accountable and they need to help people in need. And they also need to have systems and protocols in place to hold people accountable so people don't manipulate those programs so that they can become universally accessible and help the people who actually need it. So I want to wrap up by saying thank you for coming on American Poker Paradise, Anton Wilson. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to stay in touch in the future. You too. Bye.